It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is actor, singer, dancer, aerialist, and showgirl, Anne Martinez, who, along with the Red Penny Arcade, brings a night of music and mayhem to The Space this Wednesday at 8 p.m. The wine part begins at 7.30. Wine Wednesdays features performances plus wine tastings. For ticket information for Anne Martinez and the Red Penny Arcade, go to thespacelv.com. And for everything about the Red Penny Arcade, go to redpennyarcade.com. And you can follow Anne on Instagram at Ann Martinez LV. And Ann, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. You started at an early age. You didn't just become an actor, singer, dancer, aerialist. So when did you start and why did you start at such an early age? I started dancing when I was two and I started Suzuki violin when I was three. And that's because of my parents. They were very encouraging for myself and my siblings to kind of delve into a multitude of things. And my mom is an educator, so she's for younger children. So she really knows the potential kids have at a very young age to start things that sometimes people assume would be too much like music and dance. And it was just something they told me I was just drawn to it when I was really young. They said that when I was three, we had just driven back from West Virginia, where my mom's family is from, back to New York. It's like about a 10 hour joyous ride. And there was a production of a national tour of Annie. And I heard my parents talking about it and I said, I wanted to go, but it was that night. And my parents were like, she's going to fall asleep. But my mom, my dad took the boys home. My mom took me and she said, I didn't move. I just sat there and watched the whole show, didn't make a peep. And when it was over, I was so excited. And so that's when she really knew that was something that I wanted to continue to do. So I just, I started really young and I just kept doing it, played different instruments as I went along and started doing more vocal work and uh, continue dancing competitively for a long time. You didn't ever do the Suzuki violin while you danced, did you, to combine the two talents? No, I wouldn't want to draw. <laughs> I thought it would be kind but, of cool. Um, I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. You know, most people, when they get started at an early age to get into show business, whether it's dancing, singing, or whatever it happens to be, generally don't take time out for college. But you did. You got an MA degree. How did you, in your own mind, because again, you're relatively young. So how did you, in your relatively young mind, decide, you know what? Yes, I wanted to get into show business, but I also want to get an education. So I would slightly postpone my career in order to do that. How did you reason that out? Well, I think it's different for if someone is doing primarily dance, it's important to get out there young, only because the human body can only do so much for so long with injury and all that. So, but for, for me, when I was deciding I wanted to do acting in musical theater, my parents have always stressed the importance of an education. So I really didn't have a choice for one. They wanted all three of us to go to college and we all did. Also, I wasn't arrogant to assume that I knew everything. I wanted to learn as much as possible. So I went into a BFA program, which is more like a conservatory program. So it's very intensive. Bachelor and of Fine it, Arts, right? 
Yeah. So it's, it's, it's streamlined from your first day. Very, very intense. And I, to this day, I'm so grateful for that experience because it, it, you don't just focus on yourself. You also learn, you know, theater technology and, you know, costume building, wig building, production, all of that. So later in life, I've been able to easily dip into, you know, my knowledge of all that into different situations, whether I'm producing or performing, where I, I understand what the sound man is doing and how he gets there and that the rigging technicians and the backstage, you know, people and everyone in management, I understand and respect what they're doing to a whole new level because I was educated formally in it. So it's, it's important to not just be in your own world as a performer, especially in theater, because you have to be so hyper aware of how it very much is a team effort. And then I studied for a semester in London and I learned so much just in that one semester. I, I knew I wanted to pursue my master's in America. You know, it takes a longer time, but in, in England and Europe, it's, it's two years. It's intensive. I wouldn't suggest it for the stress level, but, um, <laughs> uh, it was one of the most stressful things. In the world. You know, it's like, you know, 12 hour lecture, 12 hour workshop. You know, it, there's no break. So it's, um, it's a lot of work and they approach theater intensely it's a little different here well there's i think a longer tradition there and that's probably why very much so it's it's just a respected profession at a different level whereas like in the states it's like oh you do theater how cute what are you going to do when you're you know done playing around whereas over there that would be considered a horrific insult which it is anyway but yeah it's sort of like here it's sort of like here is if you want to do the theater they go that's nice but why don't you have a sitcom yeah and then you know over over there it's it's very very respected profession so i got a different kind of a of an education they made me think deeper and differently in different directions than i was used to studying american theater so it was it opened up a lot of possibilities and i got to work with you know cirque du soleil theater of complicity like all these different companies that i wouldn't have been able to touch if i've been in the states so and i got a very broad an intense education and then writing my thesis, I came back home to do that in, in New York and I interned at an equity theater and I got a job. I was really lucky that I got a job on a tour in under two weeks of moving to New York City. That's amazing. So I just, I worked, con- and I worked so much as a kid too. I, I kind of ironed out a lot of the, the angst young because I was working professionally as a child when I was eight. So I was... I kind of ironed out all that heartache and all that intensity young. So by the time I got into it as an adult, it, it just, it's always, it's business. When you decided to go for the master's, was part of it hands-on or was it all academic? Both, both. It was a program where Monday, Tuesday, our 12-hour lecture on whatever topic we're kind of delving into. Are there bathroom breaks at least? They let you go potty, yes. I was just saying Um, 12 hours. They had uh, tea and Siggy breaks, like in my syllabus, which I thought was just the most charming thing ever. Um, and like, you know, my professors, I had to meet with them at the pub. You know, I didn't go to their <laughs> office hours. They were like, well, I'll just see you at the pub. I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to go out and like do it up tonight. They're like, well, okay, I'll see you at the pub. I was like, oh, okay. She's like a different, well, I loved, uh, you know, I would be able to sit with an incredible, you know, technician of theater and professorship from Royal Academy for 
six hours at a pub and just ask any question and, and hear their experiences and stories. I mean, that's priceless, but it was intense. And then on Wednesday, we'd work with a specialist in our field. And then Thursday, Friday, we had to create a new piece of theater to be presented by Friday in groups. So I had to constantly work with different people from different countries and their own, you know, feelings and, and the way they saw the world. So it was, it was a very ahead of its time experience where I was working with people from South Korea, Canada, Brazil, England, Australia, you know, it was just all these different personalities and people. And we had to push past any kind of prejudice we had about each other in two seconds because we had to create something perfect and beautiful in like T minus two days. So it was, it was wonderful. It was really wonderful. I learned so much. It was great. How did they accept all these students from different countries because you're in London? Is that part of their overall approach? I mean, anyone can apply to these programs. And it's it's one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world, the Central School and, and Royal Academy. So people apply from all over the world. I was the only American female that was accepted that year. Pretty impressive. Uh, it was intense. And it was one of the most frightening ex uh, auditions of my life because you have to do a silent audition. You're not allowed to do a monologue or sing a song. You have to perform silently. And uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I ended up, I worked with a, a percussionist and a, and a tap dancer. And I did a, a piece uh, based on the, the abolition of slavery in, in America through the rhythm. And um, it was terrifying. I've never been so scared in my life. And it's not where you go into a room by yourself with all the people. Everyone is in there. And they, they also, I found out later, they are watching the people watching because they want to see if you respect the artist. There were a lot of people at that audition that were phenomenal, that were not accepted. And I found out later it was because they were being disrespectful to the artist. Interesting. So the, the screening committee was watching not just you, but the other applicants watching you. Uh -huh. And based on yep. what they saw, they weeded out some of those people, even though they could have been a great performer. Oh, my God. I saw some people who did some things that I, I was blown away, and they weren't there. And I thought, oh, they must have gotten a job. They must have done this. And I found out later. And also, it was academics. So everyone there had no less than like a 3.8 GPA. So like everyone there was an excellent student. And um, and so we, you know, everyone there was was ready to work. It was a very intense, very intense group. And a lot of them have gone on to do incredible things. And some of them, you know, afterwards, they they couldn't pursue or they didn't pursue. You know, it's, that's the hard thing about this business is you can be the most incredible, talented person who can do anything and everything and you can't get a job. It's just there's so much more that is attached to it. Well, there's luck, there's timing, and there's, I think what you had too that benefited you, and we'll talk about that as we go on, is that work ethic that you developed as a young kid. And that probably accounts for your success even more so than the academic background, which is very impressive. But I think the combination of all those elements, academic background, luck, timing, and hard work, works for you. Yeah, I, I credit my my dance studio that I grew up in, Fitzsimmons Dance Factory. They they instilled a, I mean, it was a very strict school. I mean, they were, they're still, I mean, excellent, uh, very intense. 
but they taught us accountability when I was three. You know, if you're not on your number on the stage, it is your fault if we do not win this award. So if we didn't win something at a, or a placement that we wanted, you know, at a competition, national competition, we get in trouble. And then we, they, they would sit down with the scoring sheets and they would tell us why. And it was kind of like, okay, yeah, I, I wasn't on my number or our feet were not what they should be or our legs were not together. So it, it you know, it's instead of becoming a, an accusatory thing, which can happen a lot in, in performance or competition, being competitive with each other, which is a colossal waste of time and a huge mistake a lot of people make. And it's really easy to fall into that competitive, especially people are like, oh, you guys are so much like, you look so much like the minute you, I always call it drinking that poison, it's over. You'll never be happy. You'll never be enough. And they taught us accountability. If you put the work in, if you do this, if you do that, you will score those points. You will succeed. And so, and, and just the way I was raised too, you know, my, my parents were on me, you know, any, any time I could have possibly stepped out of line and I never did. Cause I, I enjoy not getting in trouble. Um, <laughs> they, they were on me, hard, especially in this business, you know, they were very like, if you do this, you will not do it. Right. That's it. And so it kind of gets you, it got me into a better and a healthier mindset to, to work. But yeah, if you, I love the process. That's the other thing too. I love the work. I love, I love, you know, getting those details because it, it's making me a better storyteller and that's my job. There's a creative side, which is always fun, but it's the planning and the process that not everybody likes in order to reach that performance capability. And mm-hmm. there are many entertainers I've talked to that they really don't want to go through that. They just want to go on stage and be funny or, yeah. or dance or whatever it is, but you really have to have that dedication to planning and preparation. Mm-hmm. Again, that's the key. So now you graduate and are you, do you head back to the States? Yeah, I went back and I... Well, that's right. You wrote your thesis back mm-hmm. in the States and then once the... Yes. Okay, here's a big test. What's the name of the thesis? What's the title? See if you remember. Of my thesis? Yes. It was a, it was a study of Commedia dell'arte's influence on Charlie Chaplin was kind of like my first section. And then I talked about basically the importance of gesture. A lot of times they, you know, performers, they'll get, you know, shifty feet or their hands, especially kids, like their hands would kind of move. And there's no, I found that there was no good guide to redirect that energy because that's all it is. It's extra energy, Adrenaline. which is a wonderful yeah. thing. You know, people are like, oh, you're just nervous. It's this, which just adds stress. So it was more of me delving into how you can take that energy, the extra energy and inject it intelligently into what you're doing to control it as opposed to adding that pressure. So I started with, you know, with Charlie Chaplin taking Commedia dell'arte and using it as the, as his character work was developing and then how that allowed him to, to really control gesture and use it to become iconic. And how we can do that as as performers, be it in, in dance, acting, musical theater, even presentational theater like in Vegas and that showman, showgirl theater, to our advantage. So that was kind of that was my m- main focus. When you wrote it, did you end up? I assume even though it was transatlantic, you had a committee that would meet with you and you would present the th- or defend the thesis. Correct. I had to like send it in because I was in New York. I had right. to send it in, which was a nightmare. Uh, I, I had a mail copy, <laughs> oh. so it was like the you know, yeah, exactly printed many, 
And then they would, you know, contact me and then I would have to defend it from there. And back, I was lucky. I only had to do it once. I only had to defend one little section. When you defended um, it though, did you defend it by phone or just by phone? By phone. Okay. So once they announced that, yes, you had now succeeded and your thesis was approved I, and accepted. I had to wait until I was mailed my certificate. So I had no clue <laughs> if I had done well. Uh, and then one day I, I got I'm not laughing at you. I, I just think, yes, I, I know people it was couldn't. Horrible. It was horrible. Yeah. Especially. It was probably one of the worst times because I was like, is that okay? Is that okay? And like, you know, you can't like call them and check. You know, they don't baby you. It's like, you'll know when you know. It's like, oh God. I mean, that's very British. So, um, you know, that stiff upper lip, like don't show emotions. Nightmare. So, you know, I'm having a meltdown for like four months. And then one day I just got this envelope and all of their envelopes are the same. It's not like in the States where like, you know, you get the big square. You're like, oh, there it is. They're always a big square. So this could be an invoice. This could be simply a letter, newsletter, or it could be the fact that you actually mm -hmm. got approved mm -hmm. for your thesis. And I opened it up and it was like my master's degree. I was like, uh -uh. <laughs> I did it, you know, because they don't have like a ceremony and stuff. Right. And so I was like, oh, my God. And I was I was sitting in the dining room, my, my parents home. And um, it's very pretty. It's all windows and it faces a woods area. And I it was uh, fall. I'm like leaves were coming down and I just ugly cried hard and our neighbor was mowing their lawn and sees me having this like epic meltdown. He's like, are you okay? I was like, I graduated. So uh, it was, it was, it was cool. And then That's I was great. like, okay. You now you're off and running. So how did you end up in Las Vegas? And then we're going to talk about the show that you're bringing to the space, but how did you end up in Las Vegas? Vegas. Well, I started, uh, I got started, you know, just doing regional theater and tours, national tour, European tours of shows and stuff. And I was working consistently. Everything was great. The economy got a little poopy. And so a lot of theaters were shortening their seasons. And I was supposed to go out on tour with a show and they cut it by like six months. I was like, oh man, I can't do this. And the pay, you know, I was like, Ugh. I've always made money. Uh, I've never had to deal with, I've never, you know, I've always navigated that I'm making a living. And I had been asked to do cruise ships. And I said, absolutely not, because I had an opinion on it. Of course, without the experience, which was stupid of me. But that money started to look really great. So And free room and board, too. <laughs> yeah, free room like, and board, right? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm free. And, um, you know, I, I didn't particularly enjoy the experience. It's just a different world. It's not just the, the show. You're just like, you can't go home. However it threw me to the wolves to sing a lot of genres and things that I hadn't really touched, which was great. And my best friend from college, he moved out here to Vegas with his wife and their, their little girl's my godchild. So he was pretty much harassing me to move out here for years. And I told him, I was like, dude, I'm, I'm five foot five. I'm too short. I'm not a showgirl. And you know, I don't look like those girls. Those girls are like, da -da -da -da. and I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm like, they're, they're, you know, kid sister. I was like, I don't look right for Vegas, but he was adamant. And so I started getting hired on breaks from gigs to do short ended like concerts and little things out here and just kind of check. And I was getting, you know, good feedback. And, you know, and then uh, on the last ship I did at three, there was a, I flew in that show 
And um, the man who was doing all the rigging, he had designed it as well. So he you know, was excellent. And I thought he was wonderful. We started, we fell in love. And I told him, I was like, have you ever, why don't you work for Cirque du Soleil? I was like, you're so good. And, and he used to be a commercial diver and he worked on uh, films. He was at Culver Studios for about 10 years, 15 years, working on Mission Impossible, The Matrix, all that rigging. And I was like, you've got uh, so much experience. There's a water show, literally, where people rig underwater. And he was like, oh, that sounds cool. I'm like, yeah. So I he applied to Oh, and of course, they hired him. And so we got married. I was like, well, let's, we're going to Vegas. So we moved because of him. And, uh, and of course, my friend harassing me. And the day I flew in, my husband had been here for about six months because I had been finishing a contract. He picked me up and I said, there's an audition for this show at the stratosphere can right now. Can we go? And I, you know, I put myself together in the car. He's like, yeah, let's go. And I ran into the theater. I just made the last time slot and I booked it. Good so story. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I have a job. Here we go. Yes. And um, I just started working right away. And uh, yeah, so it, it's been, it's been so much fun and I've been able to, do so many different shows and uh, work with so many different people and produce things of my own as well, which has been extremely exciting and fun. And well, you do have quite the resume. What was the name of the show that you got the first show audition? Uh, it was Bite. Oh, yes. I just had... Which was that like a, yeah. a vampire? Now, I oh, did yeah. not know what the show was. I thought it was just like a rock and roll show with like like a vampire theme because I just saw the picture. I, I never saw the show. And so that... The night after they, you know, invited me to come and watch it. And I was like, sure. So I sit down and then, you know, it's the show starts, the tops are coming off. I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Just so you know, though, that Tim Molyneux was just on my show. Yeah, oh, yeah, so, yeah. He yeah. was the producer creator. So very, it was very small I mean, world, very small world. It was crazy. I, I mean, <laughs> I got tossed out there fast. I was a singer in it, so, uh, but it was fast and the girls were awesome. And I'm still friends with a lot of them from that show. It was, it was awesome. It was just so cool to be thrown to the wolves like that. You know, I was so used to, okay, we're going to have all these rehearsals and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, okay, cool. Do you know the songs? Yeah. All right. Can you come and go in tomorrow? I was like, <laughs> sure. No problem. Freaking out. And I've got the girls going, go over there, go over there, hit this, do that. I'm like, mm-hmm. panic, panic, you know, right. but it was, it was such a rush. And the people that were there, that was one of the best casts. Like, that's the other thing too. It, the the team effort and the the just the vibe of a cast makes or breaks it, you know. And they were awesome people. So. You've done obviously dozens of shows since. Now you're coming into the space and you're bringing the Red Penny Arcade. How did you get together with the Red Penny Arcade? Give us a little bit about that, and then tell us a little bit about what the show is that you're bringing to the space again this sure. Wednesday at eight p.m. Yes. Well. The Red Penny started, I was in Baz at the Palazzo for two years. I, was, I played Daisy and then I played Satine for about a year and a half. And one of our bass players is Peter Fand, who was in Zarkana, plays, I mean, he's just, he's just like a ridiculous musician, just, just stupid good and plays everything and is, you know, awesome dude. He called me and was like, Hey, there's this corporate gig. You know, they need a band, you know, would, would you come and sing in it? And I'm like, yeah, it'd be awesome. 
And it was uh, him, Peter Fand, uh, Mikey J, and Keith Paraska, who was our MD at Bass. And they wanted us to play, you know, just songs, regular old stuff. And I was like, sure. And then we got there and they were like, yeah, but can you play it all jazzy? Like right now. And we had to think on the fly fast. And it, we were fine. Like I turned around, I was like, let's do this song. And, and Mikey was like, okay, I'll just set the tempo. And we were pretty much BSing through this whole thing. And it killed. I, I still to this day, I'm just like, I don't know. But we, you know, unintentionally created this environment where it was experimental and fun and safe. And everyone is smart and listening to each other. And there's no ego and everyone's just having fun. And so we worked for a bit and then um, uh, COVID hit. And it was May 2020. We got a call from Best Agency and the Venetian. They were looking for a band to play at the St. Mark Square when they were just about to start letting people back in. And just with availability and stuff, it, we needed a guitarist because they wanted some like traditional Italian in there. And uh, uh, we got John Wiedemeyer, who's the best. And once again, BSing our way through, being like, of course, Italian. Yeah, no problem. I'm like writing everything phonetically, freaking out, you know, just trying to figure it out. And the, the four of us just happened to drop into this really fun group where we're just telling jokes, having a good time and absolutely enjoying watching each other kill it. And it, we started to create medleys and songs and things that were really out of the box and fun in the most, you know, sincere experimental kind of a way. So we'll do everything from me sending guys, you know, these bizarre MP3s that I made of like all these different cuts or the day of I turn around and you know we're going to do such and such. And I say, can we do it like a dirty stank blues, but then we're going to go into this song or I'll say, I'm lyrically going to go here, ignore it. Just keep playing this medley. And that's kind of how we've created, you know, our, our sound. And uh, we're still at the Palazzo playing and uh, we play at Tuscany every Wednesday, except for this coming Wednesday. I got a call from Mark Chinook and he had this idea to do these wine Wednesdays where people get to try wines and pairings, which I love wine and um, they get to see this band. And so, you know, I can't just go in there and just have us play. You know, I got to be extra. I admit it. I got to do more preparation. So <laughs> I've been um, uh, developing a, a burlesque experience with um, kind of that great Gatsby party feel, but without that flapper look. So I started doing more research into the early 1920s and what was cool and what they did. And one of the things I loved was they, they would wear all the pearls, like the mounted pearls and drape them and stuff. And it wasn't so much a fashion thing. It was more of like a kind of like a little snooty patootie thing where it was like, my husband's so rich. He keeps buying me all these pearls and he'll get upset if I don't wear all of them. So I just had to. So it was like, you know, kind of a little like uh, the Birkin bag of that time. So during COVID, I, accidentally started a costume business for basically I was stressed out, had high anxiety and OCD. And so I started rhinestoning bras and corsets and all these things. And um, I, I sold out a collection very quickly. So I've been doing that costumed a bunch of stuff out here. And so I'll be doing that for this particular thing. It's not structured in a sit down and shut up and watch the show kind of a way. I want people to still feel free. I'm, I'm more experimenting with the experience. So it's, it's more of 
taking music and changing it into this kind of a feel with all these girls draped in these pearl costumes and other things as well. And also highlighting four artists in town that I, I find to be very exceptional, not just dancers, but incredible actors as well. So I'm throwing a lot at them and uh, <laughs> they are, I, I don't, I don't know why. And I appreciate it so much, but whenever I'm creating stuff and, I'm throwing things at people that is, I know it's wackadoodle too. And the fact that they give me their trust and, and they leap is just a testament of the incredible, incredible artists we have out here. These guys are nuts and they are wonderful and they are jumping in headfirst, fearless. And um, I'm also one of the dancers of Skylar Harris. She's an excellent dancer and choreographer. And so I'm having her choreograph a bit, quite a bit. I trust her implicitly and already everything is just beautiful and fun. So it's not just a night where you can get wine and, and cheese or the food pairings and see a band. You're also seeing these incredible artists and a new experience. That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been actor, singer, dancer, aerialist, and showgirl Anne Martinez, who along with the Red Penny Arcade brings a night of music and mayhem to The Space this Wednesday at 8 p.m. The wine part begins at 7.30. Wine Wednesdays features performances plus wine tastings. For ticket information for Ann Martinez and the Red Penny Arcade, go to thespacelv.com. And for everything about the Red Penny Arcade, you can go to redpennyarcade.com. And you can follow Ann on Instagram at AnnMartinezLV. And Ann, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. I had a great time. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.